Welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gorn. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news and wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly. Once again, the issue of U.S. tariffs on French wine is in the news. Cava continues to change its regulations with new geographical zones. UC Davis announces new varieties resistant to Pierce's disease. And as ever, our wine of the week. So before we dive into the wine news headlines, we'll talk about our week in wine. And it is the holiday season, and now we've attended a couple of Christmas parties. And one meal was at a new restaurant in the area. Uh, Very good food, a very good wine list. But we came across a chocolate, which was ordered off the list as a sort of aperitif. And we were quite surprised when the bottle was brought to us, weren't we, Matthew? Yes, I have to confess, I ordered it, but didn't actually look at the vintage on the wine list, because I just assumed it would be the latest vintage. And when it arrived, it was actually uh, 2016, which I didn't realize until it had been opened and we're drinking it. And one of the people at the table was just like, this seems a bit off. It just doesn't seem right. And because as then we looked at the label and it's like, oh yeah, this is 2016. This is three years old and Chakali is not supposed to be like that. Yes, it was old Chakali. And this is fresh off the trip from Spain where we learned that Chakali is meant to be drunk in the same year. So essentially all the producers want to sell all the product of that vintage in the following year. And anything beyond that is considered kind of old and not really saleable. These are wines that are not designed to be aged. They're designed to be drunk young, which doesn't mean they're not good wines. It's just that you drink them straight away and enjoy them. And But it did raise um, interesting issues about uh, product movement and uh, what happens when you have an older wine on the list or in your cellar or that you just can't sell. And you've had experience with this, haven't you, Katie? Yes, I have. It especially uh, comes up with, in addition to Chakali, with things like rosé. So that's all meant to be sold within a year. And when you're switching distributors, for example, which was the case with this wine uh, on the list. Yes, I noticed um, on the back it was a different distributor from the one that currently carries it now. And I know the, the current distributor, and we're naming no names here, has had issues with moving the, the back product of this wine, though I think they've got on top of it now, but it still seems that there's some uh, back stock still being uh, still out there. Right, and this is, you know, once you get to a point uh, where it's expired and basically, you know, you want to move on to the next vintage, that poses a big question for the producer. Do you destroy the product that's still in the market and you start fresh with the new vintage or do you really try to push through that older vintage which could sometimes you know put a bad taste in the consumer's mouth which we experienced as consumers at this restaurant and it is a challenge because you don't want to see the destruction of a lot of product but then you also don't want to see ramifications for a brand in years to come it's an issue on many levels because it's the distributor has to has to deal with this uh, but it's also the restaurant or the the retailer who has to deal with it as well so i knew the producer which is why i ordered it and i've tried the up-to-date vintages for those around the table who do not know the di- um, the producer they were not satisfied with it because it wasn't fresh it wasn't what chakali should be and so putting a wine out there or a product out there that people aren't going to be satisfied with leaves a, a lasting impression in a negative way and that's on the restaurants as much as the distributor or the producer 
Yes, especially as a producer, because unfortunately, nowadays with consolidation at the distributor level, as much as producers would like to rely on the distributor to really monitor their brands and market, it's not happening. And sometimes brands get lost in the phrase. So producers have to be more accountable for what's happening at the account level and what product is out there. Difficult issues, because it all, all comes down to margins and profitability and making sure that money isn't lost and we don't want wine to be wasted. Um, it must be said that all the other wines we tried in this restaurant were really, really good. It was a good wine list. And that's why this wine kind of stood out, the fact that it was um, outdated and shouldn't really have uh, been served, but everything else was really good. But it just shows how, on top of everything, producers, distributors, restaurants and sellers need to be. And all this discussion generated from an innocent Christmas party. What the rest of the holidays have to bring, we shall see. The regular listener to our pod, or indeed anyone who follows wine news, will recognize the topic of tariffs on wine. We've been reporting on how the U.S. has raised tariffs by 25% on certain European wine due to World Trade Organization rulings, as well as the general atmosphere promoted by Donald Trump. Those tariff increases resulted from a WTO fine imposed on the EU because of subsidies given to Airbus at the expense of Boeing. The knock-on effect was a rise in tariffs on wines, spirits, and foods. Now this week, the U.S. threatened further tariffs, particularly on French wine, in response to the French government imposing taxes on U.S. digital companies such as Facebook and Google. This comes after an investigation into the tax by the Office of the United States Trade Representative, who found it discriminatory against U.S. companies and suggested that 100% tariffs should be imposed on goods such as French wine and cheese in retaliation. Trump quickly modified his tone, but this dispute highlights two ongoing issues, tit-for-tat trade wars and how global tech companies can be monitored and taxed when they are able to make significant money from a territory without having much of a physical presence there. Well, this dispute comes amidst efforts by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development to unite 135 countries on the issue of taxing global tech companies, efforts they fear may be damaged by this clash between France and the US. And it's all in the midst of debate about how the power and reach of companies like Facebook, Google and Amazon lacks accountability. Uh, So it's understandable that governments want to challenge that hegemony. But it has to be done through a global consensus. Can can that ever be reached? Well, isn't that the million dollar question or billion dollar question? Indeed, Katie. And it's very difficult to see how uh, resolutions can be reached in issues like this when you have really powerful companies and governments um, at odds with each other rather than cooperating over these issues. Well, if you can't even get Trump to sign a petition against to combat climate change with the rest of the world, how do you expect him to agree with any other global powers on something like this? Another billion dollar question, indeed. And um, this is the whole issue of global cooperation on a very big topics such as climate change and monitoring the development of the internet and, and internet companies, tech companies. And I'm just not sure that governments are able to cooperate in these issues, especially when you have a very isolationist, nationalist feeling across not just in the US, but other countries as well, which are more about self-protection rather than cooperation. Also in previous episodes of the pod, we've talked about the changes to Spanish wine regulations in several regions to make the industry more dynamic. 
for example, white wine in Ribera del Duero, different tiers and new varieties in Rueda, and as we discovered on our recent trip to Spain, a greater emphasis on terroir in Rioja. And, as we've also reported, there are changes in Cava, Spain's sparkling wine. These are really important because the incredibly large region lacks any sense of typicity, being made all the way from Catalonia to Extremadura on the Portuguese border. Producers have left the designation to make wine on their own terms, and the idea of quality Cava has become greatly mocked. But, Cava regulators are fighting back. Following recent innovations, such as introducing single vineyard wines, new regulations have been announced. And, like Rioja, the emphasis is on where the wines come from, rather than the generic labelling that previously dominated. The Cava D.O. and the Spanish government are currently discuss discussing the definition of three first-level zones within the D.O. Definitions which will include the history, viticulture, winemaking, and climate of the different zones, in an attempt to make Cava a recognisably Spanish wine, rather than just a simple bottle of bubbles. Other changes being introduced include raising the minimum level of ageing for Cava Reserva from 15 to 18 months, with the wines having to be made from 10-year-old vines. There's also research underway into exploring how to segment and zone Cava's many regions. All in all, it sounds like Cava is finally tackling the issue of its wine being low quality and ill-defined. So this is all good news, and it sounds like a good idea in theory, but as we saw in Rioja with the Viñedo Singular, or single vineyard wines, there were many producers that were not on board, uh, saying that these wines didn't necessarily support quality. Rather, it did isolate those wines as expressions of the different terroirs, but it didn't encourage higher quality. So do you think this is going to be a similar debate in Cava? I'm sure the, this debate is definitely going on with producers leaving the DO and others setting up their own um, regulations, their own um, designations. And so this is kind of, kind of fighting back against that and saying, hey, we can produce quality and we can really express terroir and regionality. But there's always going to be an, an argument about the regulations introduced, whether they do that successfully or not, whether it's better to be within the Cava DO, in which case you can um, sell lots of wine, or whether it's better to be outside the Cava DO, the Cava DO, in which case you can really focus on quality. So it's a very um, delicate balancing act, uh, which the Cava DO itself has to um, negotiate in ensuring that small growers get their money, that lots of wine is still sell, it's still sold, but there's also um, a focus on quality. And it sounds like they're trying to do that, but it's not very easy. Yeah, and I guess it all comes down to can Cava really be good quality? Can it compete with Champagne or smaller regions like Francia Corta or even England in terms of its reputation? I think that Spain is trying to reimagine itself across styles and categories, and Cava is definitely trying to be a part of that. But it'll be interesting to see how that changes how they compete on the world stage. And it all comes down to uh, quantity, as, I've, as I was just saying. It's like when you're producing that much wine, how do you focus on the sense of place, the sense of terroir, when you're producing that much wine? Regions like Francia Corta and England are much smaller and can um, produce high-quality wine in small amounts. And they kind of have to focus on quality because they can't produce high volume, whereas Cava really is about volume. So can they um, go away from that and be about quality? I'm not sure. A huge issue in California viticulture is Pierce's disease, 
a bacteria which attacks vines and for which there is no remedy. It's spread by the grassy-winged sharpshooter. Once the bacteria infects the vine, it clogs up water-conducting vessels, and within five years, the vine will die. So, as you can imagine, there's been a great deal of research conducted in how to combat the disease. And it seems progress is being made. This week, University of California Davis informed the California Department of Food and Agriculture of the official release of five new grape varieties resistant to Pierce's disease all developed by UC Davis professor Dr. Andy Walker. They are all hybrids of Vitis vinifera varieties and American non-vinifera varieties, which have been found to be resistant to Pierce's disease. Of the five varieties, three are black and two are white. The emphasis has been to use as much vinifera as possible, with varieties such as Cabernet Sauvignon, Chardonnay, and Petite Syrah used, plus a small amount of non-vinifera to resist the disease. Well, this could be a very important development because Pierce's disease has been an issue in California for quite some time and no one's come up with a solution. In the past, bacteria, diseases and viruses have affected grape growing, but the challenge is more to find a way to combat them. They, they come, but you have to find a way to uh, deal with them. And it's taken a while to come up with a solution to Pierce's disease. The question is whether these new hybrids can produce quality wine or if they can somehow be incorporated into recognized quality vinifera varieties. So is this just a starting point into uh, combating Pierce's disease rather than the um, end answer? Yes, that is the question. So with hybrids, it's a tricky subject, right? You've seen wine regions that have had lots of struggles with, you know, an unfavorable climate, such as New York State and Canada, uh, where it's very cold and sometimes the hybrids do a lot better than the Vitis vinifera varieties. But you've also seen these regions struggle with making very high quality wine, which California has always done, maybe due to the plethora of sunshine that the state enjoys, but never really had a struggle with that. And now with the introduction of these hybrid varieties, I'm not sure if that will affect quality. So we'll have to see whether these varieties can produce good quality. I'm just wondering if they can be used as rootstock um, to to help prevent Pierce's disease developing. I'm not sure. Um, I still think this is early stages, um, but I'm not convinced that um, hybrids which have non-vernifera within them produce quality wine, but let's, let's see. And now for our wine of the week, which is Matthew. It's another mouthful, Katie. It's called Le Rocher de Violette Vieille Vigne Co. 2017, made by Xavier Weisskopf from the Touraine Appellation in the Loire. So let's break that down. Xavier Weisskopf is the winemaker. Le Rocher de Violette is his label. Co is the grape variety, which is the local name for Malbec. And Touraine is a large subregion in the middle of the Loire Valley. I first tried this wine in Tours in the Loire a couple of years ago and absolutely loved it in a restaurant uh, with my um, sister and my father and we had it with food and I was surprised that Malbec from a cool region like the Loire could be so good because we of course associate Malbec with Mendoza in Argentina which is very warm and even in France the the appellation associated with Malbec is Gaur which is also a lot warmer than the Loire Valley but um, the Loire is very different in its cooler climate and so it produces a very different style from Mendoza in Argentina. It's lighter bodied, it's only 12.5% in alcohol and it tastes more like Beaujolais. 
but it's still recognisably Malbec, with its floral, violet and blackberry aromas. Yes, absolutely delicious. You know how I like a good Beaujolais. Uh, But this wine is great by itself, but especially good with food. So definitely put it with some different meats and cheeses and see how it does. Uh, So Xavier Weisskopf is part of the dynamic new generation of Loire winemakers. Uh, Wines about structure rather than fruit. He also makes Chenin Blanc from Louis, Cabernet Franc, and sparkling wine. So if you're a fan of the Loire, all these wines are worth trying. And what's the price point on this wine? It retails for um, just around about $20, just a little bit above $20, which I think is a very good price uh, for a wine of this quality. It is um, a lighter-bodied Beaujolais style of wine, as mentioned. It's not fruity. And so if you are into big Malbecs, this may not may not be the wine. But if you're into Chinon and other Cabernet, Loire Cabernet Francs like that, this is definitely made in that style of wine. Cheers to that. So thank you for listening. I'm Katie Canfield. I'm Matthew Gorn. Join us next week for another wind-up. Cheerio. Cheerio.